Happy, happy Thanksgiving weekend, Village Church. Yeah, there we go. All right, glad to be with you um, here on Thanksgiving weekend. Um, you know, maybe what, you know, at some point in your Thanksgiving weekend, you sat around a table, maybe you sat around a fire pit in the backyard or something like that, and you shared with other people, the people that you were with, your friends, your family, what you were thankful for. And if you had a moment like that, um, I just want to take a moment like this um, as we're gathered as a church family, as maybe you were gathered this weekend uh, sometime with your family. Um, I'm really thankful for the Village Church. I'm really thankful that the Village Church is a place that loves the words of Jesus. The Village Church is a place that loves the words of Jesus. It loves the Word of God. It loves the Bible. It loves to hear the Bible. The Village Church is a place that loves to study the Bible, loves to sort of dig into the Bible, loves to declare the truths about the Bible, um, loves to memorize the Bible, loves to share the Bible with other people. I'm just grateful. I'm thankful that the Village Church is a place that loves the words of Jesus. I'm thankful that the Village Church is a place that declares the words of Jesus and loves to declare the words of Jesus. That the Village Church is not a place that is, that is silent about the things that God has told us in his word. He's not, we're not silent about the truth about Jesus. We're not even quiet about the truth about Jesus. The Village Church is a place that loves to declare those things, and I'm very thankful for that. And I'm thankful that the Village Church is a church that loves to sing to Jesus and loves to sing about Jesus. You guys love to sing. As a side note, in particular, the, the new song, Good and Faithful, that Reagan and the team wrote for this last sermon series, the chorus to that song, I, I don't know another song that, that you all sing more loudly than that one. You love to sing to Jesus and about, and I'm thankful that the Village Church is a place like that. And I'm thankful that we get to do this week in and week out. As we talked about, even weeks like Christmas Eve and, you know, landing on a Sunday, some of our team was like, well, this is what we do. We, we just meet on Sunday mornings. Do we meet on the morning or in the evening? And the answer is yes. Because as a church, this is what we do week in and week out. We gather as God's people around his word to sing to Jesus, to worship him. And the author of Psalm 111 says that he loves to do these things as well. He says it this way in verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. What he's saying is that there is a company of the upright. It literally means an intimate group of people. And the word congregation is a little different word. It means a larger group of people. It could actually be referring to the entire Exodus generation, the entire people of God. And so what he's saying is, I love to give thanks to God in the midst of an intimate group of people or in the midst of all of the people of God. And I think that you could take the company word that he's using and the congregational word that he's using and say, the author of Psalm 111 is saying, I love to give God thanks in the presence of his church. Most Sundays, we do that by singing a couple songs and then having someone open up the word of God and give what we call a sermon, Right? And then after that, we sing a number of songs together. And Reagan alluded to this this morning. This morning, we're going to do something a little differently. And I am, I am cautiously optimistic, all right? Because the last few times that um, we have decided to do something a little bit different as a church, our church has responded very well and engaged that very well. And I'm confident about that this morning. So most Sundays are like that. This Sunday is going to be a little different. It's going to be a little bit of a sermon. And then... And then we're going to make a corporate declaration together. We're going to declare some things together to Jesus, and then we're going to sing a song. And then we're going to have a sermon, and then we're going to make a declaration. We're going to sing a song. And we're going to do that four times, but don't worry. It's not four sermons. It's just, it's just four parts of a sermon. 
all right? And then we're going to make a declaration together, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song together that matches up with the truths that we're talking about. And everything we're going to do this morning, everything we're going to talk about is going to be grounded on or centered on this idea of the works of Jesus, the works of Jesus that we find here in Psalm 111 and our thankfulness for his works. And I can imagine if there was a time where you were around your dining room table, around a fire pit in the backyard where you were sharing things that you were thankful for, someone shared that they were thankful for their work. They're thankful for their job. They're thankful for the way that God provides for them through their work, for their family, and for others. And this morning, we're going to see that, well, actually, Jesus doesn't just give us work. Jesus actually does work himself. That Jesus has been working. Actually, Jesus said that in John 5. He said, my father is working until now, and I am working God has always been working. Jesus has always been at work, and there are many works that Jesus does. And Psalm 111 reminds us of four works that Jesus does. The first one is in verse 2, and this is where we're going to start this morning, where it says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. The first thing we're going to see this morning is that Jesus deserves our thanks for his work as our creator. Jesus deserves our thanks for his works as our creator. This word works literally means the things that God has done, and most often it revolves around his creation. And in Psalm 111, there are different words for works, and this is one of the first. This word that means the things, again, that God has done, and most often his creation. You would see this in the New Testament in a place like Colossians 1, if you're familiar with the Bible, and I know most of you are. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And this is the church that I know loves this reality. And one of the reasons I know that is this is a church that just loves to be outdoors. There's a couple times a year there's families that plan a trip to Yosemite and if you stand in front of Half Dome or you kind of walk through some of the past and you see the grandeur of the things that God has created, we're reminded that he is our creator and the things that he's created are incredible. If you've been to the Grand Canyon and stood out on the corner, not too close, but looked across the vastness of all that he has done and made, you stand in awe in a place like that. Or maybe very quietly you're on a plane flight, maybe on a weekend even like this, and you look out the window and below you, you see just the vastness of what's below. And maybe on the plane even, in your mind or sort of under your breath, you stand in awe and you offer a prayer of thanks to God for all that he's created. Jesus deserves our thanks as our creator. Maybe it's something not as dramatic as that. Maybe it was uh, something as simple as a Thanksgiving walk. You know, our families, we're so grateful we live in this place where um, we're sort of, we have this walking trail. Irvine's like that. You know, a lot of trails and pathways, but ours is particularly beautiful. And, and just in the morning as we walk, and I got to run with one of my daughters this weekend and just see the light coming through the trees and the leaves and the different colors and the hues and just thanking God, even on a Thanksgiving walk or run. Maybe some of you made it to the beach and we all know that uh, all the tourists and looky-loos, right, they're gone now. And so it's wonderful. It's just quiet at the beach. September, October, November, the best time around here where you can just go and it can be a bit more quiet and less crowded. And you can see the crashing of the waves. You might even be tempted to jump in. And just the beautiful, wonderful things that God has made. 
Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in him, who delight in them and in him. Christians should be the most thankful, the most joyful people when we're outside. Christian surfers should be the most joyful surfers, right? Christian hikers should be the most joyful hikers. Christian rock climbers should be the most joyful rock climbers there are, right? Christian enthusiasts of any kind should be the most excited, the most joyful, the most happy in God and happy in the environment that God has created for them. Last week I was talking with a village partner and we were talking about this idea when he walked into a local store that, that uh, you know, provides all the stuff for camping the outdoors. And he was saying, when did, when did Christians just sort of give up the outdoors to people that don't even believe in the creator? That don't even have the, the ability to say, look at what he has made and to enjoy it and to delight in it. Sort of handed this over. The Puritans always saw things in creation. They, they rejoiced and thanked God for his role as their creator. And so we're going to do that this morning. And I want to ask you to declare that with me this morning. As we get going and we declare some of these truths and we sing some of these songs, I want to ask you to declare this truth with me together. It will be up on your screen. I will lead you. Let's just declare some thanks to him for his role as our creator. Can we do that? Let's do it together. We give thanks to you for being our creator, for the incredible things that you have made. We're going to make a few more declarations this morning, but right now I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing about these things together. The psalmist shows us that we not only should offer him thanks as our creator, but in verse 3 he points out something else we should declare our thanks to Jesus for. Look at it with me. He says, full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Here we see that Jesus deserves our thanks as our sustainer, as our sustainer. This word works is a, is a different word for works. There are many works that Jesus does and has done. This is a different one. This word works means the providential acts of God in caring for us, his creation. He didn't just create Yosemite and El Capitan and all the beautiful things we see, either Grand Canyon or your favorite spot of the outdoors. We know that the height of creation is humanity, people created in his image and likeness. That everything that God created says was good and when he created us, he said it was very good. And he does hold everything together. He holds the the tides and sets their boundaries and he holds together everything in every national park and every place around the world. The author of Colossians, the Apostle Paul, says it this way, following the verses we just read about his creating all things, it says, and he is, he is before or he's over all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus did not only create everything, he also sustains everything, that, that everything on this earth is sustained and held together by him. And that Jesus didn't just create us, he sustains us, he cares for us. The psalmist in 111 makes a big deal about this, and maybe this is a big deal to you. This, this feels like almost it's the biggest deal around Thanksgiving and around Thanksgiving weekend that we just pause for a very particular period of time in a particular season and we remember that he is our sustainer, that he's been the one that has taken care of us all year long. 
And he will be the one that will do it next year as well. And not just next year, but, well, tomorrow when Monday hits and this long four or five day weekend, however long yours was, that is gone, that was just so wonderful. Monday hits and he will sustain us tomorrow when the regular routines are back into place. As a matter of fact, he sustains us through many of those regular routines of life. He is good to not only create, but to sustain what he creates. And again, the author of Psalm 111, he, he waits this. He spends a couple more verses, verses seven and eight saying, the works of his hands are faithful. He's faithful and he's just. And all his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. His word and his works are faithful. And what the psalmist is trying to remind us about is that what Jesus has said he will do, that his words and his works are both faithful. He's not just faithful in what he says, he's faithful in what he does. And what he does, he does not always do, maybe in the ways that we would want him to. But in the end, we see that what he has said and what he has done are both faithful and they're true and they're just. He does what is right for us and he does what is right by us. He always has and he always will. People that don't know Jesus might say something like, well, that was just sort of as fate would have it. Or, well, isn't it great that everything has just worked out for you? Or isn't it fantastic that all just sort of lined up? And as Christians, we know that there's no such thing as just all things lining up or that it would just sort of all work out for us or that fate had anything to do with it. There's a person that had something to do with it. Jesus had everything to do with it. He is our sustainer. And so this morning, I want to ask you to, um, to join me as we declare the truth about him as our sustainer. And I'll do a little bit better job leading you in at this time. Would you join me? We give thanks to you, Lord, for being our sustainer, for all the ways you consistently care for us. And he does care for us. Let's remind ourselves of that by singing those truths together. Would you stand and let's sing. He is our creator. He's our sustainer. But there's something else that the author of Psalm 111 tells us, and we find it in verse 5. It says he provides food for those who fear him and he remembers his covenant forever. And here we see that Jesus deserves our thanks for his work as our provider. That Jesus deserves our thanks for his work as our provider. This was, in a sense, mostly what the first Thanksgiving was all about, that that he sustained them through a certain season and he provided for them in a season where maybe they were unsure of how that would happen. There's no work here in this section, but there is the word provision or provides. It means the ongoing provision of God. And the psalmist knows enough to know that, that God is the kind of God who always provides for his people in the New Testament, we see it said this way by Jesus himself, therefore do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And I can tell you, I need to hear that as much as any of you do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things that the Father knows all of us need will be added to you. I hope um, I've done as good a job as my parents did um, growing up um, with our kids as they did with, with, with me and my siblings of sort of reiterating this reality. I can imagine for, for many homes, um, your kids have heard discussions about money, even though you try to sort of maybe have them outside of their purview. Or maybe you take them as opportunities to sit down and actually teach them about God's provision and the way he's always been faithful to provide for us. I can imagine in a room like this as I'm looking around, there's parents and there's grandparents and there's children and there's grandchildren. And I can imagine even sitting around that Thanksgiving table, a lot of generations talking about God's provision. And that's why this word literally means the ongoing provision of God, his covenant with his people that he'll always take care of them. I mentioned my upbringing because my folks would, would reference Psalm 37, 25. I've been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And my parents would often remind us about God's provision, and they would tell us stories about when they were young and broke. <laughs> you know, we probably all have those stories, unless you're a trust fund kid, I guess, but, you know, young and broke, and then, just sort of the way God has provided in sort of those young, hard years and then the way things have built, perhaps, and the way things have sort of ebbed and flowed over the years, but the way that God's always provided, they would remind us, we've been young and now we're old and we're telling you the same thing. God takes care of his children. He provides for his people and he always will. The psalmist reminds us what my parents often reminded us of, and I, again, I hope to my kids who are here, I hope we've done a good job reminding you of the same that God even provides for us outside of ourselves when we're like, literally, what are we going to do? Like, what am I going to do about it? What am, what am I going to do about that number? You know, like, what am I, I going to do about that thing that we need? Like, how am I going to do that? And the answer is, sometimes you're, you're not, that he's going to do it in a way that's just miraculous. Verse 6, the psalmist reminds God's people of that, and I want to remind you of that this morning. He has shown his people the power of his works. There's the works word again, the sustaining word, in giving them the inheritance of the nations. And I don't think this is actually a very, like, generalized kind of view, like the inheritance of the nations. What does that mean? I think the inheritance of the nations is, is actually reminding them of something very specific that we see in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when the Lord your God brings you into a land that he swore to your fathers, it's the covenant, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and full of houses with good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat, and when you are full, then take care, lest you forget it was always the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. I think the Protestant work ethic is fantastic in some ways. I think it's, it's unfortunate in some ways that 
as Protestants and following this sort of Protestant work ethic, we, we are hard workers, and we should be. We should do all our work well to the glory of God. But sometimes I think we get this sense that, like, we can just work harder and attain more, or we, we're providing it through our own work, through the things that we do. And, of course, there is that sense. The Bible actually says in the New Testament, if you don't work, you're not going to eat, so you probably should do that. And that if anyone doesn't actually provide for his own household, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. So Christians should be hard workers and, and do what they can to provide for their families. But, but in the end, Jesus does what only he can to provide for his family, for his children. And maybe you've experienced that kind of moment even this year where his provision is just coming away you'd never expected. So we're gonna give thanks to him for that. We're gonna declare it together. I'm going to lead us once again. We're going to make this declaration to him as our provider. Would you join me? We give thanks to you, Lord, for being our provider, for always providing for our needs. Let's sing about that together. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He's our provider. And the psalmist tells us he's one other thing, which, which seems almost exponentially more important, although those things are legitimately, rightfully important to all of us. The last one we see alluded to in a few places, mostly in verse 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And here we see that Jesus deserves our thanks for his work as our redeemer. And Jesus deserves our thanks for his work as our redeemer. This word works is, a, again, another little different word for works. It literally means the extraordinary acts of God, the extraordinary acts of God. And if you think about the Old Testament or you've spent some time in the Jesus Storybook Bible with your kids or you know the Old Testament stories from when you were young. You know that there are these amazing, extraordinary works and acts of God. But there's one that the people of God in the Old Testament always pointed themselves back to, that God always pointed them back to. And I think he wasn't just thinking of them. He was thinking of us. He had us in mind as he did that. It's the remembrance of the delivery from Egypt and the Passover, the the Passover is the remembrance that I believe the psalmist is talking about here. And verse 9 reminds us, He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. And if you're a Christian, you know the story of the Exodus. Um, if you're not yet a Christian, maybe you saw the Prince of Egypt or something like this. And you get the gist. The short story is that God's people found themselves in Egypt and they found themselves there for a long time, generations. And they found themselves under slavery in Egypt. They were oppressed and they were crying out to God for deliverance. And well, God's deliverance took more time than maybe even generations had thought was reasonable. Even if it seems like God is unreasonable in a moment, God is always faithful, and God was faithful to his people. And God delivered his people out of Egypt. And before he did, the night before, he, he had them institute what we now know as the Passover, where 
where they took the blood of a lamb and they spread it on the doorpost and over the threshold of the home and the angel of death came by as the final plague, taking the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, but passing over their homes because of the blood that was on the doorpost, reminding us of now of the blood of Christ that, that is over us, that covers us, that covers our sin. And God has saved us now. And so in their time, they, they put the door over the door, the blood over the doorpost and the angel of death passed over. And that next morning began the great exodus where Pharaoh says, get out. And as they left, all the people gave them so many things and they, they worked their way out of the city and through the wilderness and finally to the Red Sea. Where we know the story, Pharaoh's Egypt is, Pharaoh's army is coming and we know the Red Sea opens and God's people pass through on dry ground and, well, we know the sea covers up the Egyptians and God saved them, God delivered them, God redeemed them from their slavery. And if you're a Christian, you know this, and if you're not yet a Christian and you've joined us this morning, that the Christians often refer back to that story and we talk about this idea of the the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that, that that exodus out of Egypt was actually a picture of, of what it's like for us. That, that we as people are, that we're in slavery to our sin. This explains the reason why there are certain things that you know are wrong, but you can't stop doing them. That we are sinful people by nature and by choice. And that we sin in what we think and what we say and what we do. We're enslaved to our sins. We can't help ourselves. But the Bible teaches that God wasn't content to leave us that way. And maybe you feel like, if you're not yet a Christian, you feel like, yeah, I should have been delivered by this from this a long time ago. Where's God been? And I want to tell you, he's always been there and he's here in this moment. And he wants you to know that, that he wasn't content just to leave us as humanity in that place where we're in slavery to our sin that breaks our relationship with God and breaks our relationship with other people and destroys the world that we live in, by the way. But that God would come to us in the person of Jesus Christ and that Jesus would live a life without sin, without any of the sin that you commit and that has been committed against you. Jesus lives a life free from sin. And the Bible teaches that Jesus died on the cross and in our place and for our sin, that the weight or the consequence for our sin was all placed on Jesus on the cross. And when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him as the son of God who's come to save us from our sin, when we have faith and trust in him, that we can be forgiven for our sin and we can be free to live the life that God intended for us from the beginning, a life that's not completely free from sin, We'll continue to sin, but we'll be forgiven for our sin, and we will increasingly not have a desire to sin, not, not want to live in those ways. Christians call that being sanctified or sanctification, theologians call it, that we're becoming more and more transformed into the image of Jesus. We're becoming more like him. And that we'll be free to live a life that he created us from the beginning, a life enjoying him in relationship with him and enjoying others and being thankful for everything he's given us and most thankful for this thing. In Colossians, after Paul talks about Jesus as the one who's our creator and our sustainer, he even alludes to this idea that he's our provider. Paul also reminds us that he is our redeemer where he says in Colossians 1, and you who were once alienated 
and hostile in your minds, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That as Christians, we believe that when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, that, that God looks at us as, as if we live the life of Jesus. We have his clean record. Martin Luther called this the lovely or the great exchange, that he took on our, all, all of our sin and he gave us all of his righteousness at the same time. And when the Father looks at us now, he sees us as blameless and above reproach in front of him. That we're forgiven, we're clean. We're delivered from our slavery of sin. We're children of God. I believe this is the good news this morning for us, that Jesus is not only our creator and our sustainer and our provider, he's also, and maybe most importantly, he's our redeemer. He's the one that saved us, that not just provided things for us, but provided a way to be in relationship with God again, which is incredible. God deserves our thanks for this because there's no other way for us to see this other than it's a gift of God. The Bible says it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and it's nothing of our own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of our need, of our works so that we shouldn't boast about it. And the psalmist, I think, ends this psalm by alluding to this reality. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Village Church, you know that if you're a Christian, you know that, that, that we would never see these things on our own. We would never come to this conclusion on our own that Jesus has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. That he's shown us that yes, we should walk in the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom, relationship to God. And that those who practice this have a good understanding and that's all by grace as well. One last declaration this morning, and can I ask you to stand with me as we make this last declaration. When we stand, oftentimes we do that in honor of someone or something. And so in honor of Jesus and his work as our redeemer, let's stand and declare these things. We give thanks to you, Lord, for being our redeemer, for delivering us in extraordinary ways and ultimately delivering us from sin and death. Amen. Village Church, um, we're going to respond to some of these things now. We're going we're gonna to sing some more songs to Jesus. I know some of you were probably thinking, but I just love stringing songs together. I don't like this back and forth thing. We got you. We thought about you. We know. We're going to string a few songs together. All centered on this theme of the redemption that we find in Jesus. We're going to sing to him. He deserves it. We're going we're gonna to pray. We're going to talk to Jesus. You might do that with someone that you know or someone you're next to or on your own. We're gonna to give to Jesus of our tithes and offerings. And if you do that here at the Village Church, you know how to do that. And we're gonna remember Jesus. We're gonna give him thanks by receiving communion. And when you're ready, you can go back at the communion stations we open and you can remember Jesus, his body given for you and his blood shed for you. So let's sing a few songs to Jesus. Let's worship. Let's give him our thanks in song. <laughs>